If you could meet up with one person in the afterworld, who would it be? From Well Played, this is Superhumans. 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 Who is a superhuman? Superhumans is what we become when we allow our story to serve as medicine for others. I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. The world is so beautiful through the eyes of this next storyteller. Together we get to hear from a NASA astronomer, Michelle Thaler. Michelle sees life through the lens of stars. She talks about how we're both dead and alive at the same time and fundamentally believes, just like the stars, we're all connected in some way. As you listen to Michelle, think about how you might see parts of yourself in the story she shares. Before we hit play, I just want to give you a friendly heads up. This episode contains some mature adult content, and it may not be suitable for certain individuals. I'll see you on the other side of the story. I think humanity, we, we never should have thought of ourselves as, as separate things. I think that we are meant to be a superorganism. I And I am talking evolutionary advantage here. I'm talking something that worked for life to take hold and for our biology and our culture and our intelligence to develop. And apparently there has always been some type of a use for people that just want to look up at the stars. I know the stars are my friends. I could feel it. I grew up in a relatively small town in in Wisconsin. And while it was definitely suburban, uh, I wasn't really out in the country, the night sky was dark. And the house that I learned to walk in was adjacent to a, a big field. And there was this big grassy expanse of just unused space right in the back of our house. And there was something about my youth that I actually was aware of being young. I actually was aware about how good it felt to be able to roll down a hill just to be dizzy. I was aware when I laid down on the grass and looked up at the sky with the, the, the clear blue sky and the clouds going overhead. I sort of had this feeling that I could just, if, if I didn't concentrate on the ground below me, I could just fly off into space, just fall off. You know, I was looking out, not up. I was looking out into the universe. And if you lose your concentration for a sec, you'll just fly, you'll just fall. And I have no idea why I had that reaction, but the stars immediately seemed like old friends. There are people who are born with some sort of, kind of a a calling, 
And I, I, I don't think it's necessarily an advantage in life. It can be uh, uh, something to, to deal with. But apparently there are people that, that come onto the earth that, you know, as soon as their feet hit the ground, as soon as they are born, their minds are tuned to something. And to me, that is my experience of being human. And because of that, it's always been an experience of being a little bit apart, of being a little bit lonely. I think if, if I could have designed it for myself, I would have been much more like some kind of a baby monkey, just clinging to everyone pretty much all the time and looking at the stars. My, my mother watched me be bullied, and, and sometimes it was, it was hard. I remember the tears. I remember walking home from school crying. In, in the case of my school, it was, it was gentle bullying. The, the girls just simply said things like, you're strange and you're weird and we don't want you around here. It wasn't physical bullying. I wasn't hit. I wasn't really threatened. But I was just, it was just made quite clear that I shouldn't consider myself part of the group. My mother became very uncomfortable raising me. And even now, even now in the last few months, she erupts in anger at me for, for no reason I can perceive. And I have, I have just for the first time in my life started to have the courage to talk to her about this. Um, after the anger has passed, you know, we'll arrange a time to call, and I will say very gently, you know, I don't even understand what triggered that. And when she tells me what it was, it doesn't seem to make any sense to me. It, it, it's an interesting case of people living in different realities. But her anger towards me has also existed since a young child. And so I've also learned that people will reject me and get angry at me no matter what I do, and it hurts every time. What's happened is I'm suspicious of it. I'm waiting for it. And I feel like over and over again in my life, people desert me, um, just, just simply leave me with no warning. And for the baby monkey that just wants to hold on to everybody and not let anybody ever go, that's something as well that has colored all my life, almost every breath. When am I going to be deserted? When are you going to leave? So my, my very socially inclined mother raises this child that wants to go out and look at these cold little stars in the sky and cold is my memory because the best nights, of course, were the winter nights. But with Dad, Dad would take me out for night walks around these high school fields. And we would look up at the constellations. Of course, Orion is the one that is most easily seen in the winter sky. And Orion is actually a friend. And I have to, whatever I'm doing, the first time I see Orion for the year, I need to stop what I'm doing and do a little welcome dance. And it's a silly little dance. 
It involves me kind of turning in place and swaying back and forth, and it looks it looks silly. It's designed to. It's not something grand or you know, you know, you know, some high priestess. No, it's it's a it's a, a dance of, of joint recognition. And um, I have in the last few years, I've I've pulled over the car at night on the highway, uh, on a quiet highway, to get out of the car and and do my little dance. I think one of the more memorable ones was about, about, I guess about two years ago, we launched this huge rocket from Cape Canaveral. NASA uh, did, when I say we, I worked for NASA. I, uh, um, it was a gigantic launch because this rocket was going to the sun and we were sending an observatory for the first time to orbit close to the sun. So at four in the morning, I was standing on top of a building uh, and, and looking towards this rocket and I saw Orion rising. This was quite early. I, I believe it was, you know, it was still late summer. I think it was August. And we were just up so early in the morning while <laughs> we hadn't gone to bed that uh, I saw it rise. And I was standing next to John Grunsfeld, who's a, a friend. And um, he saw me doing this silly little dance, you know, this you know, five-time astronaut, head of NASA science. And so he joined me. So wasn't quite sure what I was doing. I had to explain it to him, but he, he knew I was doing a silly little dance, and I did a silly little dance with, with John Rumsfeld. So, for some reason, we have these people. And I always wondered, why did I actually enjoy being something of an outlier? We were never meant to function just as individuals. I completely rely on the people who wanted to have children, on the people who wanted to farm, on the people who wanted to learn to build, on the people who wanted to learn to heal. But apparently, there is still a use for the outliers and the people who love the stars and can't tell you why. So when I talk to when I when I talk to you about being deserted and being certain that I'm going to be deserted, one of the things is that I'm actually talking to you about this from the belly of the beast right now. Because there has been one person in my life that has never deserted me. Ever. Never threatened it never even made me feel subconsciously like they were going to, never made me doubt them. And that's my husband, Andrew. Andrew is an image of what I always wanted to be. For one thing, let's just say it, a man. I wanted to be a real member of this culture, not somebody who by something I, I couldn't control at all, was automatically something outside, something less. I can remember about 26 years ago seeing this man walk by and thinking, that's a nice-looking man. And not a pretty man. I don't like men with you know, beautiful, symmetric faces. He has English teeth that are crooked, and he has a big jaw and a red beard. And 
He has eyes with tremendously beautiful wrinkles all around them. Even when he was younger, his eyes would crinkle all the way up. He and I are both astronomers. And it was like the stars. That was the person. It was love at first sight. Andrew and I grew up with parents that were not particularly good at love. And for some reason, Andrew just left that all behind. So this person was the vision of everything I wanted to be. And for some reason, they could love me unconditionally. And when Andrew and I were married, I realized that Andrew needed vast chunks of time to be quiet, to let his, his mind really grapple with life and calm down at the end of a day, being brilliant, solving problems. I, I'm not exaggerating. Solving engineering problems no one else ever could. He invented types of instruments at NASA that nobody ever had. To give you an idea of Andrew's brilliance, and he wasn't the one that invented this technique, but he's invented uh, specific instruments that have never been done before. Andrew can make multiple telescopes around the world act like one single big telescope. You think, well, that's great. I mean, the larger a telescope is, the better clarity and resolution on the sky you can see. So why don't we just always do that? It's very hard to do. And the reason is you have to dovetail different realities, different parallel realities. The light from a star, a single photon, a single particle of light has to pass through all those telescopes at the same time. This is what we've done. This is literally what we've done. One could be near the South Pole, one could be in North America, one could be in Australia, one could be in Europe. And the same particle of light has to exist in them all simultaneously, really. Andrew's telescopes don't work. They literally produce no image unless you catch the same particle of light. A photon released a trillionth of a second later by that star. A different photon and it doesn't work. My husband builds instruments that only work if alternate realities overlap with each other. So, I had to accept in him that after dinner, when I would have liked to have talked with him about my day and, and, and maybe, maybe made love and, and, and maybe, you know, had a chance to really connect with him. What Andrew needed was quiet and peace. Andrew needs to approach feelings and emotions and attention and affection on his own terms. And so we didn't actually have sex the first time we met. And for me, yes, that's a little bit unusual. I am a, a very, I'm a very sexual person. I love sex. And, you know, I, there, there, there never was any bit of me that was ever virginal. Um, I didn't lose anything. 
lose your virginity. No, all I gained was a lot more mental stability. But Andrew, Andrew didn't have those same needs. And when we were, when I was in my 40s, he went through a bout of depression. And, and he and I were not particularly well trained in mental health. We didn't really know what was going on because he, it wasn't that he was unhappy all the time, but he, he just sort of stopped doing a lot of things. He withdrew and he wasn't interested in sex. And I remember being outside on the driveway one day with him. We just happened to be out in our, you know, near our house, maybe doing some yard work. And I just, I, I remember somehow crying and ending up on my knees in front of him, saying, what am I supposed to do? You know, what am I supposed to do that there's this huge part of me, this huge drive, and, and we just don't fit? And this marriage was something I was so proud of. And there was no way I was going to lie to him, have an affair, hide something, that I, I don't think I've ever really tried to tell a substantial lie. I, I, I can't. I, I'm trying to think now of a big lie. <laughs> I can't. I'm just, I, I suck at lying. And so what we decided to do was something that I think a lot of people do, but nobody really wants to talk about. And that is we decided to, what they would say, open our marriage in the sense that I could have other sexual partners, but it would all be above board. He would know about it. He would know where I was at night. He would know who these people were. And so... Instead, we decided to become, there's so many definitions of this word, but I guess the word is polyamorous, that I would have whole other relationships. The, the one that lasted the longest, which was about three years, um, this person came on vacations with us, this person came and stayed at our house, all of us together. This man, he became the object of absolute beauty and perfection to me. He's... He's, he's also tall, gray hair, receding hairline, um, good big belly, big soft man, long limbs, but, you know, large man. I, 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 these people, with Andrew with his crooked smile and with, with my lovely boyfriend, with his, his, his big belly and, and gangly limbs, have just become... In, in my life, these people have been jaw-droppingly beautiful. Absolutely perfect the way they are. We, Andrew, by the way, was, was not having sex with this person. The whole point was Andrew did not particularly want to have sex. Um, but I would be in the guest room with my uh, partner. We would all have breakfast in the morning. We all would go to the symphony. We would all meet up in New York for a Broadway play. Oh, and by the way, I, I told my parents, I told my friends, um, I brought my partner and Andrew to work Christmas parties. I, I cannot lie. And if somebody is going to judge me or f fire me or what, what else could you be afraid of if I show up with my partner and my husband? You know, one of the favorite pictures that I have is at the Christmas party, I guess two years ago now, where we're all standing smiling in front of the Christmas tree arm in arm. And people knew who he was. 
you know, I never said this was just a friend. One of the things that was hardest for me was confronting how that person left me. He, he, had, he had three girlfriends. I was one of three girlfriends. And that was fine with me. And, and I um, invited them over to my home. I took them out for dinner individually. You know, these women tried to get to know them. I told these women over and over again I respected them and I was going to support them. It was the first time I've had people turn on me for no reason that I can discern. They told him that I had said something, that I had done something. I kept asking over and over what it was. They started acting mean not wanting to, literally not wanting to talk to me if I were in the same room. And then eventually it was, it was his 50th birthday and they threw a big party in New York and they, they rented a, a, you know, an Airbnb and they were, they went to a dance club and they, they told him that I could not come. And I, of course, was very angry with him. And he never gave me another chance. He never let me explain. He never, I said to him over and over, I don't know what I did. I will apologize to them. I will talk to them. Let's all get together. Let's rent a hotel room. Let's all get together for the weekend and talk. They never let me talk to them. And then they stopped me from talking to him. And this was still blowing around. I was still texting him, kind of these desperate little texts. Can't you talk? Won't you please just talk to me? He would not talk to me. And then a day later, Andrew was dying. He said, you know, I'm just feeling kind of odd. You know, I I have sort of a tingling sensation in the right half of my face. And when I heard that, what I was thinking was perhaps a minor stroke. Maybe he was having a small stroke. I'd heard that these were very easily contained and treated if you acted quickly. And so I just drove him to the emergency room and said, "Let's, let's just see. Let's just make sure. And I wish I could remember this moment better. You know, him coming out of the emergency room, he must have looked shocked to some degree or quiet. But I I can't call that image up. But what, what they had found was the cancer was already everywhere. He was going to die from it. They would would advise us that there was some treatment that might give him a few more months, and we have done that. He has multiple brain tumors, and um, Andrew has completely metastasized cancer. It's in every major organ. It's in his bones. It's in his blood. Uh, His his brain, his liver, his lungs, his lymph nodes. Um, It's in his back. It's all over his body. And, oh, screw it. I called my boyfriend from the hospital. I went to the chapel, the little little chapel they have with the the fake stained glass windows and the, 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 the fake 
bookcases, but it's quiet. And I, I cried and I begged. I said, please, please don't leave me alone. Please don't make me go through this alone. Please let me know there's somebody on the other side of this who will still love me. There was nothing I could do to make this person want me back. When, when Andrew was first diagnosed, I felt like this wasn't my planet anymore. So, I have the stars, and I have my knowledge, and I have my joy, and I have my exaltation, and I have my love. I have held his hand through every chemo treatment for seven months. I have scheduled friends to call. I have scheduled it. I wish they would schedule it. I have scheduled them to call me several weeks and nights, so I'll just have someone to talk to because Andrew really can't talk anymore. Just to keep my sanity, to keep myself going, I, I needed to do that work. And if you hear this and you think, you know, someday most of us will be in this situation. Someday most of us will be caring for the love of their life or a child or a parent that is dying and you, th you think, I'm not going to be able to handle it. I'm going to tell you that you can. The human brain is incredibly adaptable if you just let it, if you just don't stand in its way. And there were, I don't know, there were maybe, maybe three or four times that I, in his presence, screamed with grief you know, wept from my soul, you know, the, the sobs that go all the way through your body, that you just, you cry, you know, these, these sort of strangled animal sounds. And I would do that for about 10 minutes. And then I would get up and do the dishes and keep going. And you, you will. And I've never had children. I think maybe it feels like this to have a child where your brain just rearranges itself. All of a sudden, these things that were overwhelming aren't. You don't want to do them. They're painful, but you can. And we all can fall apart at any time, just become a little collection of atoms and molecules again. And once again, you're led back to yourself. And the person I find myself alone with now, and soon will be very alone with. But somebody, somebody can be worthy of love just because they exist, just because they are. I'm finally beginning to know, and I'm finally beginning to accept, and I'm finally beginning to think that I'm worth that same level of respect. It's taken a while. So, you know, me with my, my cold stars, the stars don't offer any judgment at all. They don't offer a whole lot of affection. But there is a safety to it. They come back every year. You know, Orion will keep coming back. 
I'm already dead. Andrew is already dead. Just jump in. Jump in the deep end. And the only thing we have is each other. The only thing we have is the unique little combination of atoms that you are. We're such these brief little combinations, and yet we have depth and richness and love and passion and curiosity and unexplained parts of being human as the superorganism that you need some people to look up at the stars and you need some people to be every single aspect of humanity. We're part of this superorganism. And right in front of me is proof that we do not understand the first thing about reality yet, the nature of reality. And when the universe began, whatever that means, when you're trying to talk about something outside of time, the point in space where I met Andrew, the point in time was already there. Probably several versions of it. So, what particle of light was in a universe where Andrew didn't get cancer, and we had a lovely year? If being the weird superorganism part that tells you, as we mourn, is it really going to help when Andrew dies in a couple months, that he's already dead, that that point in time already exists, that there are different versions of it? I am going to grieve like, like, like an animal that I am. I am going to scream and cry and writhe on the floor. I, I fully expect that. But yes, to me, there is something to the fact that when the universe began, I was holding his hand. And when the universe ends, I'll be holding his hand. Hold each other's hands. I can't even tell you the first thing about reality and space and time and one thing not causing another and and yet there is so much exaltation and beauty and I say this right now in the midst of grief in the midst of exhaustion in the midst of having been rejected and abandoned I feel so damn much joy I want to exult in what this thing called life is and this thing called the universe is I'm scared, out of my wits, to my core. Let's do this together. Let's hold each other's hands. I need you to do this with me. And I need you to know you're going to be okay. In some way. Because <sighs> we don't even understand what reality is yet. I think that's kind of my story. <laughs> now that you're back, we'd love to share with you how Michelle is doing now. Michelle is an open book, one that's so fascinating it's hard to put down. She selflessly pours her emotion onto the page and shares her personal experiences with grace, curiosity, and confidence. 
while she gazes at the stars with deep admiration. We will continue to gaze in admiration for Michelle, for her uncanny ability to connect reality with our wildest imaginations. You might want to know that since this recording, Michelle's husband, Andrew, whom she mentions in the episode several times, has since passed away peacefully. Michelle openly expresses her struggle with her loss, however remains an open book, sharing her heavy grief with the world as she anticipates a rendezvous with Andrew amongst the stars sometime again in the future. We want to let Michelle know that we love her. We have so much more from our conversation with Michelle Thaler, and we'd love to share it with you including her deep pontification as a NASA scientist on how we're all connected to the stars. You can access this and much more by subscribing to our newsletter at superhumans.health. We've created an online community just for you. Follow us on Instagram and join in on the conversation. Look for our handle at superhumans.health. In our next episode, you'll hear from Dr. Alex Haddad, where he fakes his own death. My surprise birthday present was a much more intimate funeral. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg, Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujun Yao. Production assistance is provided by Tara Bika. Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. While the original music you hear before each story is composed by Radha Mehta. And a special thanks to our creative collaborators, Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G. And you are loved.